This podcast does not constitute financial or investment advice. It is for educational, general information and entertainment purposes only. Please consult with your own financial advisor before making any financial decisions. I think one of the things for me is, I think if you want to be in a leadership position, it's really important for your girls to know a, that they can and they should and they, you know, there's absolutely no reason they, they shouldn't do anything that they want to turn their minds to. If that includes leadership positions, they need to have a basic level of understanding of things like cost centre reports and balance sheets and profit and loss and they, they all sound really scary, but they're not. You're listening to Banking on Girls, the podcast that explores the importance of financial literacy for girls and young women. And I'm your host, Marina Batmuala. Join me on this journey to uncover insights and inspiration. Today's guest is my friend, Kylie Hargraves, who is the chair of the Australian Alliance for Energy Productivity and a deputy chair for Regional Development Australia. Kylie is an experienced diplomat and is passionate about water, waste and energy. She has over 25 years experience in federal and state governments, including as Australia's senior trade and investment commissioner in the United States, the United Kingdom and Spain, and as former deputy secretary for several portfolios in the New South Wales state government in Australia, including resources and energy. Kylie, welcome. Thanks so much, Marina. Great to be with you. So great to have you here. You know, Kylie, we met in the early 2000s when you were posted as the Australian Trade Commissioner in Los Angeles. At that time, I mean, it was quite a long time ago now, but you were already a few years into an exemplary career as an Australian diplomat. So what was your path to joining the diplomatic service? Because I know your dad was a diplomat before you. Did your parents encourage you? Absolutely. Yes. So I was a diplomatic brat, as they say, and got to travel the world mostly in developing countries, which I think is quite relevant in that it really influenced how I think about money for want of anything else. Yes, so I certainly grew up around the dining room table understanding what a career of a diplomat was and the role and responsibilities and therefore understood that it was always an option. Although, to be frank, the Australian government, as many other governments at the time, had some reservations about women as trade commissioners. In the 1960s, there was a very famous file note that was prepared around how it would be difficult for women to represent their country as trade commissioners because of a a range of challenges. Uh, A couple of my favourite were things like, in addition to doing the trade job, they would also have to manage the household and how could they possibly bear up under such strain? If they got married, well, that's sort of a waste of training, so to speak, so why would you bother investing in them? And my favourite, which is if they didn't get married, they tended to become grumpy spinsters rather than mellowing like men do who are remain unmarried and in fact the term that they used was battle axe okay so, uh, it's uh, it's quite interesting to me that in that context which was obviously around when my father was a trade commissioner I still ended up being a trade commissioner and posted to one of the most competitive markets in the world which was the U.S. which was what I wanted to do, but I did have a very senior ranking Austrader several years beforehand tell me that they would never appoint 
a female senior trade commissioner to the US because the market was too competitive. So things change, which is a great thing. Well, good thing you have a sense of humour. So we've come a long way since 1963. What did your mum think about you entering the diplomatic service? Yeah, so they were both of them were really, really proud and pleased because I think it sits with that value of doing something uh, that is greater than yourself and obviously benefiting other Australians. I think mum was also particularly proud because she had to give up her career when she married. Um, that was just the thing that happened in the day. Now, of course, she, you know, doesn't begrudge the life she had as a diplomat wife. In fact, she, you know, understands how lucky and privileged that life is. But I do think that she instilled that sort of fierceness to be independent myself. She sort of put me in T-shirts that said things like, anything boys can do, girls can do better. And it was one of my favourite T-shirts. She obviously spoke about, you know, the fact that if I had my own job, I could be independent. I didn't have to rely on a husband. I would have more choices and that I should pursue a career of my own so that I can actually enjoy that independence. So I'm very grateful for that. I also, there's a couple of times when you meet people as well. When I was very young, growing up in a diplomatic household, it's fantastic. You get lots and lots of colourful, exotic, you know, foreign accents and people and clothing and exposures and all the rest of it. But generally speaking, it was the females were dependent on the males, if I can say it that way. Until I finally met a married couple, actually they weren't married, that was the other thing that was interesting. I actually met a couple in Trinidad and Tobago, I think it was, when I was probably about nine, and she had a different name, but they were obviously a couple. She had her own job, she had her own bank accounts, obviously asking lots of questions I probably shouldn't have as a child. And I just remember that this was the sort of model that I wanted. I wanted to be totally independent, but working in partnership with someone, which is, again, the, the pathway that I've chosen with my with my partner. And we're not married. I'm the lead breadwinner. He's followed me around as a diplomatic spouse. So I think it's those sorts of things that are what shape you as a person. Yeah, so travelling around the world and having exposure to so many different cultures and types of people obviously had an incredible impression on you. Definitely. Poverty in particular, unfortunately, we spend a lot of time in developing countries. And when you're travelling to school and you're leaving your, you know, clean house with running water and power and nice clothes and all those sorts of things, and you're literally driving past shanty towns and you know kids that clearly don't have enough to eat and this sort of stuff it's a very physical lesson on the have and the have nots and you know I was very lucky I was born into a privileged family there are millions of people that don't have that luck and you know money and being able to invest save get a job those sorts of things can literally mean the difference between a life well-lived and a life that's quite difficult. So then you chose this career path in the diplomatic service. What was it like being a young woman travelling the world representing your country? Amazing. I would absolutely say it's one of the biggest privileges of my life. But, of course, it comes with challenges. So, you know, in, in Spain I was the youngest female ever to run her own post 
And it was highly amusing, again, in some instances where you're going to meet, you know, CEOs of banks or that sort of stuff, and they're trying to marry you off to their sons. And you're like, well, no, I'm actually here, you know, talking about trade. I'm trying to do investment deals, you know, but it also it also helped. So, you know, if they like you and there's, you know, some curiosity as to your life and sometimes it's just easier to build that rapport and, you know, next thing you know, you've sold a fast ferry or two. <laughs> so it's it was a fantastic life, not without its challenges, not without its difficulties, but I would certainly not change it for anything in the world. And so you were involved in trade. What does that mean? What is trade? So essentially it means as Australia's representative in these markets, what I'm trying to do is I'm actually trying to find new opportunities for Australian exporters. So if you're an exporter of music or an exporter of wheat or an exporter of fast berries, my job is to try and find opportunities in the market in where I work for those goods and services to be sold. Likewise, if there are companies interested in investing in Australia and they want to invest in you know roads or energy or schools or anything like that my job is to try and facilitate those deals and essentially you get measured by the amount of deals you make and the number of companies that you help and were there many women doing that at the time not really <laughs> i think i actually did a quick check the other day on the sort of the public listing men women to see if it had improved And it has, it looks like it's about a 40% representation just based on their public website. And that's definitely more than when I went through. For example, when I went to Europe, I was the only woman in the in the sort of the leadership team for a while. We had others join us, which was great. Same for the Americas. I was for a while, I was the only woman for a while as well. So I'd probably guess that when I was going through, the numbers were probably around 20%. So that's a that's a good improvement in, you know, 20 years or so. So that's great. That's great progress. So during your time in Los Angeles, you actually co-founded a program called the Gaudet USA program. And I think it started in LA. And you did that together with the Consul General at the time, John Olson. But it's a program which still exists today. It's, I mean, I think it's 20 years later. And it actually changed the way Australia conducted public policy, not just in the US, but around the world. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, no, definitely. That was a fantastic program. There were actually four of us that developed it. So as you mentioned, Consul General John Olson, Wally Mariani, who was the head of Qantas at the time, and Michael Londrigan, who was the head of Tourism Australia at the time, and myself, who was head of the Australian Trade Commission. And interestingly, when I got posted to Los Angeles, I was told that the only potential trade with Los Angeles was film and television. And I must admit, I found this quite amazing because I, California is, was the fifth largest economy in its own right at the time. And, you know, population bigger than Australia. And we were saying that the only thing that we could successfully sell into this market was film and television. So I didn't understand that and I didn't buy it to start with. But obviously, when I arrived, it is Los Angeles. You, you live there. Los Angeles is, is slightly different to some of the other cities in the US. And it does have a currency around celebrity. Anyway, John Olson in particular, so he's more in the political space, if you think about it, the foreign affairs and policy, and he was often quite frustrated at how low a profile Australia had. I was very frustrated that the only thing anyone ever knew that Australia supplied was, you know, Nicole Kidman. (laughs) And so we sort of got our brains together and we were saying, this isn't good enough. How do we do this? The post 
again, as comparison, was ranked 130 out of 130. So it means it was not performing very well against the KPIs. And we thought, no, well, you know, let's build on the strength that we have. And that was celebrity. And so how do you, you know, the the promotion by association is very, very well known in the US, but it is not an approach that the Australian government condoned or had ever used at that point in time, other than outside of perhaps tourism. So we thought, how do we actually harness the award season in Los Angeles to harness the Australians that are coming for the award season to use their celebrity to promote food in the supermarkets, Australian fashion in the stores, Australian wine, Australian art. And that's how G'day LA started. I think we spent a million dollars on it and it came back with about 22 million in returns for the country. And then, as you say, 22 or 23 years later, it's still going and it fundamentally changed the way that public diplomacy was conducted in the US. Outstanding. So then, Carly, now you're back in Australia and you've transitioned your career. You now have a fantastic career in water, waste and energy. You sit on a number of boards, non-for-profit, for-profit. How did you make that transition? I'm not entirely sure to tell you the truth, Marina. I think it was sort of uh, luck to be quite blunt. I left Austrade after 17 years to come back and set up the New South Wales government's international trade and investment operations. So that was fantastic. And I worked for a number of very good secretaries. And one of the secretaries asked me to essentially keep a seat warm is probably the best way to describe it, while they were recruiting for a head of resources and energy. And I certainly did not know anything about that sector. I'd been mostly in fast-moving consumer goods. So I certainly said, yes, of course, I'd be very happy to do that. And it was fantastic. You know, I was exposed to geologists and engineers and environmentalists and, you know, the strategic importance of affordable, reliable energy and I just loved it. So I actually ended up putting my own hand up for it and became the first female appointed to the role in New South Wales. And I sort of stayed. So I spent sort of five or six years there. And then after I left the New South Wales government, I continued on in that wastewater and energy space. Because again, throughout my career, you know, I've had a love of the ocean. You know, when I was in London, things like food miles and water footprint were, you know, trade barriers for us actually being able to do deals, affordable energy, obviously, when you, you know, going back to those days with in developing countries, if you can't get power, you can't, you know, look after your household, you can't manufacture your products, you can't you keep the economy going. So I just love being in that space, basically, and, and I've been there ever since. Yeah, well, energy is an industry for the future, something everybody's talking about. So that's fantastic. And I think your career journey is such an important one for girls, young women, all people to hear because part of financial literacy is understanding what is possible in terms of careers that are available. And you've made, you know, used your own skills, talents and initiative to build, you know, more than one career for yourself. Kylie, you know, you talked a bit about your mum and your mother really encouraged you to have your own career and she also encouraged you to become financially independent. How did you make yourself financially independent over time? What has that independence given you? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, if I think about the conversations I've had about money specifically, the interesting thing about that is I've had most of those discussions with my dad, but the philosophy of looking after yourself and being independent and having choice is definitely something I picked up from, you know, mum and dad. 
In terms of my journey, again, I think sometimes people struggle to think, you know, where was that aha moment sort of thing. I think I had a fairly traditional exposure in terms of, you know, pocket money. If I wanted to earn pocket money when I was uh, little, it had to be for, you know, extra jobs outside of your normal chores. And why do you earn pocket money? You earn pocket money because, you know, I wanted things that my, you know, my peers had. It was actually quite interesting because as a diplomat, a diplomatic child, one of the things I noticed was it didn't really matter whether I got the right colouring set or whether I got the right T-shirt. I was always different. I sounded different. I looked different. And so actually very early on, I learned that I didn't need to, things were not important, I guess. And and I therefore, I didn't need to spend my pocket money on things. I could just keep saving them up until something really, really important caught my eye. So, you know, pocket money became quite a nest egg, I guess, at an early age rather than something that would disappear very quickly. I was always expected to have jobs. Um, so I think I had a, my first job working at the after-school childcare centre when I was in boarding school because, again, if I needed or wanted things, like if I wanted to go to the movies, you know, I needed to have some discretionary cash and the only way I could do that is to have my own job. So I started that probably pretty young. I also did door-to-door traveling sales jobs, you know, worked at bakeries, all sorts of things. So I've never remembered a time when I wasn't expected to have a job once I was old enough to have a job. And I think some of the very basic financial literacy I learned from my dad was what I'd say is common sense, not numbers, because I was never attracted to numbers. But common sense is around behaviors for me and and makes it's easy to understand, it's easy to put in practice. So some of those things are things like, you know, never lend more than you can afford to lose. Credit cards are problematic, you know, try not to have a credit card if you can avoid them at all costs. If you have to incur debt, pay the debt off as quickly as you possibly can. Save for a rainy day. So the interesting thing when I first got my first job, rather than going out and saying, yay, you know, I want a new whatever. I was actually thinking through saying, okay, dad had told me that really you should have three months contingency and that's like insurance. It's not savings. So that was also ingrained and I'm not entirely sure how, but I I have to say it would have come from my dad because that's where we've had those most conversations. And then because of that sort of not, I don't need to buy a lot of things. I guess what I also got was an early exposure to investing So I didn't start investing on the stock market. I started by investing in, you know, very conservative things like term deposits (laughs) or, and then as I sort of built up, I'd get more and more, I'd have a higher risk appetite as my nest egg got stronger and building up to property and then, you know, super and all that sort of stuff. So I think I had a slow burn in terms of financial independence such that now, you know, I don't have to worry about retirement. My super is in good shape for both me and my partner. We own our house in Sydney, which apparently is the ninth most expensive place for real estate in the world or something ridiculous. And, you know, we have complete choice and it's all because of that incremental investment and understanding of how to use money and when to use money which has been, you know, critical to where I am now. Mm-hmm. So just for our non-Australian uh, listeners, super superannuation. Sorry, yes. So superannuation is like your 401k scheme. And in Australia, which again, you know, how does someone learn about their finances? You know, in Australia, your first paycheck 
Your first paycheck will have a couple of things in there. One of them will be probably paying off your college debt or the equivalent of college debt, and they automatically deduct from your salary so you pay back your college debt. And there's automatically super, which is a 401k, which is an employer's co-contribution against your contribution for retirement fund. And in Australia, it's compulsory that you provide some of your salary into a retirement fund, but you can always put in more. And again, that's sort of one of those things that I've always looked at doing over and above the, the minimum. I've always had a bit more in there. It's a bit like paying off a mortgage of interest plus principal. It's the same sort of philosophy that just keeps playing again and again in my whole sort of life and my approach to finance. Okay. So, you know, Kylie, I've been listening to you and for someone who doesn't think they're a numbers person, you just gave us in five minutes or less an entire lesson on financial literacy. So you talked about debt, paying off debt. You talked about having a rainy day fund. You talked about saving over time for retirement using compound interest. And you talked about diversifying your investments. So brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should have accomplished that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Kylie, what what kind of advice would you have for parents raising girls and young women in today's world? Yeah, I think one of the things for me is I think if you want to be in a leadership position, it's really important for your girls to know, A, that they can and they should. And, they, you know, there's absolutely no reason they, they shouldn't do anything that they want to turn their minds to. If that includes leadership positions, they need to have a basic level of understanding of Things like cost centre reports and balance sheets and profit and loss, and they, they all sound really scary, but they're not. And I think that's the most important thing is to explain to people that, you know, the approach you have, which is behaviour-based for your own personal finances, is not that different to what you have to apply when you're managing money on behalf of others. So if you're managing it for a business or you're managing it for your own business, which might be the case as well, you do need to understand how to read some of those basic financial instruments, but they are not scary and you don't have to be, you know, a statistician or an accounting whiz. You just need to be able to apply some common sense principles and don't be afraid of doing that, I guess, is the most important message. Kylie Hargraves, it is so wonderful to catch up with you again. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Marina. Thank you for listening to the Banking on Goals podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate the podcast and be sure to hit subscribe or follow so you can receive notifications of new episodes. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and at bankingongoals.com.